Hi, you're listening to the Raise the Vibe with Liz podcast. I'm your host, Liz Peterson. I interview today's inspirational speakers and healers. Thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Raise the Vibe. I'm your host, Liz Peterson, and today I have Bill Burnett with me today. Bill is a TED speaker and the Moth Radio Hour storyteller focused on helping create more moments of happiness that occur when people connect, particularly around anxiety and depression. Bill got his start in IT working for NASA and ended up working 16-hour days at a successful dot-com. He had a parallel odyssey through depression, addiction, social anxiety, and other islands of growth. After becoming a high achiever in the field of self-destruction, he built a new life clean, 11 years. He learned how to live well with his bipolar two condition. He developed a new career in technology marketing, helping a tiny startup to seven years of consecutive growth. Bill's TED talk on how to connect with depressed friends has nearly two million views. And his Goldcast video on overcoming social anxiety has over 1 million. He performs an award-winning comedy show about depression and anxiety in the U.S. and Canada. Bill's media appearances include NPR and NBC. Bill, welcome. Thank you. Good, good to be here, Liz. Yeah, good to have you. Why don't you start off? I know I just read your bio that I put yeah. offline. But how about if you discuss for our listeners a little bit about who you are where you come from and how you got started. What led you to right now? Yeah, so um, I, well, I I started out uh, in career-wise. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at a person's life, but we'll we'll go career-wise for a moment. Uh, I started out working in technology and uh, was, you know, fairly good at, at the basics and computer stuff. And at the time, it was really easy to get work if you were. And um, <clears throat> but I had emotional issues that had been kind of, uh, you know, building since since early childhood, really. And uh, <clears throat> and so I would say around uh, the time of my late 20s, it became kind of unmanageable. And I started to unravel a bit and I got involved with drugs and uh, so this <laughs> this is uh, sorry and I don't really get sad when talking about these things so I would say up front like to people who deal with these things right now or who have dealt with them or who have had loss around them I you know I honor that struggle and I, I mourn your loss with you and I totally respect that and uh, my role as I see it, is uh, not to hold, not to build monuments to the sadness that I've known, but to build monuments to, you know, the the happiness, the quality of life that is available to people. So that's that's kind of the angle that I'm going to be presenting. But I will, so I will talk about some pretty heavy things, and I won't be getting bogged down in the heaviness of them when I do it. That's just sort of uh, a disclaimer up front so that people know I care about you. I'm not belittling your life or your loss. I'm just talking about what's available to people. And that is to be able to connect around these things. Um, Because even though they're really hard, depression is hard, anxiety is hard, addiction, alcoholism, uh, and so many other things, right, that people run into are so hard. But they're also very, very common and very, very deep in our core. So uh, the ability to connect around them is really uh, a fertile opportunity for people to feel better because human connection feels good. So I, I, uh, I think that that's really uh, the, the sort of the perspective I bring to it. So that said, I, <laughs> I fell into addiction. Uh, my depression had been really bad before that. And it got worse. So drugs, drugs, <laughs> drugs don't work. Don't believe the brochures. It uh, it got really bad, and uh, I had a suicide attempt, and then I kind of lost everything to addiction, and then I had another suicide attempt, and so we can go back through this in more detail if you're interested. But I'll give you the bullet points, and um, 
And then I sort of had a, 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 some time in the forest after that second suicide attempt on my own, which was really helpful. And you might find it interesting to learn a little bit about how that helped me. And then, um, then I, I also had a connecting experience in that second hospital stay that really sort of shifted how I felt like less of an outsider when I realized there were more people like me who went through what I went through. And so I had this sort of like little shift and it, it took a few years yet for me to actually get clean and a few years after that yet for me to actually realize, oh, getting clean doesn't automatically make you happy. It just, uh, it just gives you some, some clarity, some space to start looking in how can I have a life that I enjoy more because of course when you're not, uh, yeah, and so so it created that for me. So that was a separate journey, and I learned a lot of people in recovery from addiction go through that same journey, uh, where they're like two or three years clean, and they're like, you know, what the heck? I'm I'm still not happy. This is a ripoff. And then and then they realize like, oh, I see. Yeah, I just have to deal with life like everyone else now. And um, and so then I started kind of rebuilding my life, and I learned uh, how to socialize. I lost a lot of weight. I um, uh, I learned to live a lot better with my bipolar disorder. I have a bipolar two, they call it, because it's more of a rapid cycles than, than long-term. And, um, and uh, that's really kind of, and I started doing storytelling and that kind of led me to meet people because I would tell stories about parts of my journey that I thought I wanted other people to know they weren't alone if they had a similar journey. And then that led me to meeting people who, uh, led me to meeting people who had similar journeys and were involved in advocacy. So I started doing some public talking and that's kind of really kind of led me this way, you know, for me having been through, and I've also done a comedy show around my depression and addiction. And, and uh, that's really, that's really fun. Like I say, I like to find the joy because yes, these things are hard, but, but there still is a lot of joy in life. And even in the darkness, if, you, if you're comfortable with it, uh, there's joy. And so letting other people know that it's okay to be comfortable there is its own, <laughs> its own sort of uh, delicate balance that I've, I've learned a lot about and I'm still learning. And that, that brings me to today where I'm really uh, kind of making it my main, main focus in my life. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Let's talk about that, you know, unpacking that finding your joy piece. So how did you find that? You know, because especially right now, where it's kind of exacerbated right now, where people are, you know, in the thick of it and there's a lot going on around us and people are searching for ways to kind of tap into that joy. What are some tips you might have for people who are experiencing maybe a deeper sense right now? Well, I can tell you what I did, and really my, my best tip for anybody is uh, to take your own sort of, to, to, to not count on somebody or something to do that for you, if you, and that if you just keep trying different things, sort of be a scientist try different things and find what works for you because it's possible. And I went through, I'll tell you what worked for me. And a, a lot of people don't have the same experience, but I hit a point where I was just living in horrible depression and I was extremely isolated. I had almost no, no friends or people to, I had really no friends in the area and no people to talk to. And um, <clears throat> a couple of people I could talk to, and then I lost one of them. So it was really unusual for me. But that's where addiction uh, or mental illness can lead somebody to, to total isolation, which is its own severe pain. And uh, so there hit a point where, you know, I would have thoughts of suicide and ending my life, but I knew I wasn't really going to do it like it's easy to have that thought and to hold on to that because it provides some escape it really like people who think about doing that oftentimes it's just because they're in pain and they want to escape it but i realized like nobody was coming for me you know it didn't matter if i if it was right or wrong if life was fair or it wasn't fair if i had done things you know regretting past mistakes 
uh, wishing other people had treated me, all those things that many of us go through that I'd been really holding on to, you know, resentments and what ifs and if onlys and why didn't they's. And uh, that's really, it's really natural to do that. And um, at some point I said, okay, I can ignore all that. Like I'm not saying it's not true or it is true. I'm saying it doesn't matter right now because if I want to have a life where I'm not living in this extreme pain every day, then I'm going to have to start taking action on my own because nobody's coming for me anymore. That's what I realized. The people, so, so that was a big shift. And what I found, and I didn't even know if it was possible. I was like, I don't, but you know, I didn't, I didn't have any other alternatives and I didn't really want to die. I had had a couple of suicide attempts, but at that point I was like, you know, I don't really want to die. So uh, the suicide attempts were just, I mean, I did come really close to dying and arguably, let's not get into the, the nitty gritty of those, but the, uh, it was really about um, uh, just wanting to stop my pain more so than not, not loving the world because the world, it was always like, there's so much there. I just didn't think that it could be available to me, that kind of joy that other people had. Um, so... Yeah, so at that point, I did a lot of things at once. I said, okay, I'm going to work on the outer stuff, like uh, learning how to lose weight, which uh, was its own sort of journey. And I'm going to work on learning how to socialize. I had always had social anxiety, uh, really pretty severe social anxiety. So I've got a cat here. I'm going to redirect him to the floor. The uh, really severe social anxiety, but it had gotten worse through addiction and uh, isolation and so I was in a pretty bad, sometimes I have to put up barricades for him. The, <laughs> uh, I was in a really bad uh, <clears throat> isolated space. I mean, my social anxiety, different people have different levels, but it was hard to even say order pizza because I didn't want to say hi to a delivery person. Um, and, and going to the store was very scary. Just like being around people was hard. And... Um, so I decided to set out about trying to shift that, to learn how to be around people, to learn how to not be so uncomfortable. So that was its own journey. And then there was um, also a journey around mindfulness. What are the answers, right? How can I find something uh, independent of what's happening in the external world that provides me relief and that was that was also a journey and and so I, I didn't really count on the external journey or the internal journey I just said you know I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on all these horses and see and see what happens and um and that was really uh so th there was a little more to it than that but that's the gist of it and and I started taking action on the physical world things and I started reading books and uh, meditating more and getting into uh, things around mindfulness that were really helpful to me. So that was, um, that was probably the most, uh, I, I don't know that I would say one component alone could have been taken out and I would have done as well. Mm -hmm. In theory, if you're meditating and you have this great perspective where you've released all attachment to identity and the results of your actions, then you have immediate peace and you can just go through the, sorry, I get really woo -woo really fast. So those of you who didn't right. follow that can, can just ignore it. <laughs> no, you're in the right place. Please continue. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Then in theory, you just instantly have peace, but like, I'm, I'm, wasn't, I'm not counting on that. I have, I have, uh, I have not achieved that level of uh, sustained peace myself. Uh, but I do have moments and knowing and A, having the moments and B, knowing that mom those moments exist does shift kind of everything, right? So which journey, if you want to, we can talk about. So that's kind of led me to today and um, I'm happy to talk about, you've kind of got, now you've got the picture, you can go back and, and ask me to draw more detail anywhere that might be interesting. Or we can jump to World Suicide Prevention Day and talk about what we're doing around that, whatever works.
Yeah, you are coming to Vashon on Thursday, September 10th, and you're going to be doing the suicide prevention campaign, Tales from the Edge at Vashon Center for the Arts. That's at 7 p.m. live streaming there, um, put on by Vashon Be Prepared and the community care team. And thank you so much for being, you know, part of the panel. Yeah, we absolutely. We really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, Why don't we I, talk, I, just touch on that. And then I wanted to actually go back and talk about your connection experience because I think connection is an important part of the process. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know more about the event and what goes on on Vashon in terms of advocacy. I'm getting the sense it's really a place where I wouldn't say everybody knows each other, but everybody has like a these communal points of focus yes. around certain organizations and their activities and certain um, podcasts like yours or radio events. And so, uh, so they are doing an event around World Suicide Prevention Day. And, uh, you know, my role there is to bring some lived experience and let people know that there is hope that you can go through these really dark times and then not be in such darkness. And um, so I'll share a, sh a very short version of my story. I don't have, I can't go into a ton of detail there because I have like three to five minutes. I'll probably wind up doing around four and then there will be Q and A. And um, <clears throat> we will have some other professionals there who will be contributing on the panel and I've met them and they're really, really grounded, savvy people. So I look forward to the conversation. And I think that really the zeitgeist around what we call mental illness, although I don't even love the term because so many people deal with these things that then we'd be like the whole of humanity is ill, which some people would argue is I don't make that case. I'm saying these are like natural parts of the human experience and that we don't need to be afraid of them or ashamed of them. And that if we can talk to people about them, if we can not have to be in this sort of hiding thing around having dark thoughts or not being happy all the time, <laughs> if, we can, if we can shift the way people think about that, then that, that will help a lot of people to live better lives. And I think it will save a lot of lives because we, um, we really, a lot of people, if they're feeling suicidal, they're A, they might be afraid to get treatment, might be afraid if they have access to treatment, which is a whole other issue. But if they, if they have that access, they might be afraid to get treatment because of the stigma around it. And whether they get treated or not, they may be afraid to um, connect with other people just around simple things like anxiety or depression. We can leave suicide out of it. Like people are dealing with this major stuff that can incapacitate you, really shift, shift your life in, in really severe ways. And they're like afraid to talk about it. And so by letting, by making, you know, adding one more voice to the conversation to say, hey, it's okay to talk about these things. You know, I've been doing advocacy for so long now that I forget why we're supposed to be embarrassed about having depression or anxiety or things like that, because they just seem like such a common natural part of the human experience to me. But you know, if I wind it back in my head, I can, I can, I can connect the dots. Oh yes, this is like the way humanity exists and they judge people and people judge people. And there's this sort of sense of comparison and superiority and this need to sort of hide so you feel like you fit in. But really the irony is if you really wanna connect with people, hiding your anxiety and depression is the terrible move because you have like this golden ticket for connection to people. Like you can connect about something that is so powerful and real and meaningful to other people so deep and they'll be so glad to connect with you about it. You have like this amazing opportunity to connect. Uh, okay, I got a little rambly there, but you get it. <laughs> no, that's great. And it's true when we're vulnerable with the, our friends, family, it does bring relationships closer and it does open up different channels of communication. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And even in the broader world, there's a lot more opportunity to be open about things. I mean, you don't, don't want to spill your guts to everybody, but you also can acknowledge these things without it having to be uh, a big deal. Yeah. 
So let's talk about your connection experience that you mentioned. Well, that was uh, learning how to break out of social isolation, uh, learning how to, to deal with social anxiety, which I'd had my whole life. I remember even going back to uh, maybe 20-ish years ago, I was telling a, a therapist who I was working with on addiction what would go through my head when I would say go to the supermarket, all the thoughts of people judging me and how awful I was and how hideous and blah, blah, blah. I was body image dysmorphia. And um, so I had all these things. And... Uh, and my therapist said, uh, wow, if I had to go through all that, every time I left the house, I'd use drugs too, which was really, which was really hilarious. He was great. Um, the, uh, uh, there should be more laughter about things like that. And uh, it wasn't until many years later that I started just, I said, okay, I'm going to make an effort to learn how to do this. So I started finding things that I could go to. And initially it was just OA meetings, Overeaters Anonymous, because I knew the 12 steps from my drug recovery. And with the OA, with the OA meetings, um, I didn't feel self-conscious about my body. So I could show up in a room with people and I was like, everybody's here for the same thing. Nobody's judging me here because of my weight. And like, that was a feeling I hadn't had in a long, long time. Um, so I just sat there and kind of listened. And then um, the next year I started uh, going out a little bit into the actual world. So I would, um, I went to a meetup for fans of a certain science fiction show I liked called The Firefly. And uh, they would get together and play dominoes. And it was very scary going to that first meetup. Gatherings of people were very scary for me. And uh, But I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go and I'm going to stay. And I sort of had a plan. Like my social anxiety was severe enough that I needed a plan. Like I'll sit there, I'll be fairly quiet. I'll try not to frown too much. I'll have a little bit of a smile. I'll try to hold a pleasant energy. I won't try to over talk. I won't try to overtake the conversation because I don't need that pressure. And um, it doesn't not necessarily going to help anyways. And so I'll just, you know, speak when a little something comes up. So I just had this sort of like whole strategy around the emotions and the logistics of how to be around other people and that uh so I, I went and you know it was a success in the sense that i didn't leave i stayed there the whole time and uh and so that was a big accomplishment for me like that month i'd say you know and, and i went again in a couple weeks and then i slowly started finding more things to do. I was in a 12-step program, so instead of just running out the door after meetings, I would sometimes talk to people, which, which could be very hard. If you have a lot of social anxiety, and I, have, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, yeah, my, my joke around it is, uh, you know, there are, there are social superstars in this world who can uh, talk to strangers without being at all stressed out. <laughs> Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, if I'm, uh, basically, you know, I can, I would, I was, I would just consider if, if I was having a conversation and it went well, I would think, okay, this is, this is going great. I should just leave now before they figure out, you know, before they start to think I'm weird. Like, it's like, all right, 30 seconds of pleasant conversation. Great. We should go. <laughs> and so I would fight through that and I would stay and I would talk and I'm like, at what point do they actually want me to, at what point is it over was a very confusing thing to me. Do I go now? Are they done? What are the cues? Like it was all like I was some sort of alien trying to figure out like, well, how does this work? So I didn't know. And, you know, and then there were times when it was like, okay, so now I, I can do this and now I don't really, I'm getting kind of bored here. So, but like those things seem really natural to most people, but for people with social anxiety, that's a real, that's a real struggle, right? You're going in and you're, you don't know when should, are you talking too much? Are you talking too little? Are you saying the right things, the wrong things? Are you, and your goal is just to have a positive exchange, right? You're not like my goal. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pick up on this person or I'm going to make this new friend with this guy or I'm going to, you know, whatever. My goal was like, if I can have a pleasant conversation and then we're done and then we both go like I've won. That's all I really wanted because I didn't know how to do that. And um, so that was really 
a lot of mistakes too. You know, there were times when I would say things that were um, uncool, I guess would be the word for it. You know, I could tell somebody was slightly like, oh, really, whatever. And so I had to give myself permission to do that. Um, I had to be like, you know, that's going to happen. Like people will sometimes um, not want to talk to me, or maybe I will say something uncool. And, and what I would tell myself is, as I, I would say, Bill, look, you, I just gave myself permission to fail. I said, you already know what it is like to, uh, to isolate. You already know how painful that is. Coming in here and screwing up sometimes to try to learn how to connect with people might be painful, but it's better than the pain of isolating. So that was really my, um, was kind of my internal mantra. And I could say things that would, you know, or I would learn things like, uh, yeah, like I, <laughs> I, got, I got cats and I didn't know people didn't want to see pictures of your cats, but I learned pretty quickly. <laughs> For the record, my cats are freaking adorable. The, uh, but so you learn these little things that you just don't know if you haven't really talked to people in casual conversation like that your whole life. You, you, so I, I had so many little things to learn and I used to hate small talk, like chatting about the weather or the room you're in or the event you're at. I used to think it was like so, but you know, as I started to learn to connect with people, I realized that it's not about the amount of information you're conveying in small talk, right? <laughs> Probably that you're not conveying anything new or neither are they. It's about the desire of people to connect and this being a mechanism that allows that. So I started to realize like, I see, okay, so then you can just talk to people about these things because you're coming with a pleasant energy and you're wanting a pleasant connection and people are like, yeah. And, uh, you know, they don't say it that way because, you know, a lot of times they're businessy people who are just, you know, you're not really going to get that close to them, but now you actually have the ability to have that whatever amount of connection. And then if it's in something that you're interested in an activity you're, you're doing out of your personal life that you're interested in, well, then maybe there is that real connection that grows, but, um, but either way, starting off with small talk can be really, uh, really fine. So I had to get over myself like that. I was too cool for small talk, you know, and somehow, you know, somehow it's kind of ridiculous in hindsight. Like, yeah, I'm the one sitting at home alone because I'm afraid to go out of the house and I'm the cool one. Like, I, don't, I mean, there is solitude that you can choose and that's great, but I wasn't choosing it. I was, I was basically imprisoned by my fear of interacting with people. So it was a slow journey. And then there was a journey around... Then I did have a journey around uh, a number of things and dating. I was like, okay, I'll go online. And so you just like, are like, I'm not gonna, you learn little basic things that a lot of people learn in grade school or high school or college. I was learning there in my forties and um, it was okay. It was really, really actually exciting and joyful. And it was scary and sometimes really depressing. Um, but mostly it was like, this is a, an, a fascinating journey that I didn't get to have before that I do get to have now. And all of those things that I thought were impossible for me, like being able to be comfortable in a room or even, I remember I was going way back some 20 plus years, I was standing in line at a bank and I lived in San Francisco at the time. And a friend of mine, I had, I had done some stand-up comedy for a while. And a friend of mine I knew from that came in to uh, happen to be in the same place in line. He just came in right after me and I hadn't seen him in a while. And we're standing there chatting and he would talk to people around us. Like he would make small talk with people in line. It was a, and I was like, That's, that seemed so impossible to me. Like the idea of talking to somebody you didn't know about anything was, and I was just in awe. I was like, how is this, this person has like an amazing special gift that's just not possible. And then I realized, no, he, he, he didn't have an amazing gift. I had a, an, an amazing limitation that I thought was normal because we tend to think that what we go through is normal for everybody. Um, 
and then continually are surprised when it, it turns out <laughs> that it's not always the case. So, um, uh, and that was really, uh, so that's been basically, that's the trajectory of it and how it developed. And I guess one more thing I would share to cap that off is I did build a personal sort of uh, system for dealing with rejection. So if there's social rejection, whether it's just somebody snubs you at an event, they don't wanna to talk to you, or you wanna be friends with somebody and they don't wanna be friends with you, whatever it is. And I just said, okay, rejection is first off, it's like, it's like a healthy part for me to find my people. There's rejection. It's not, it's not a step backward. This is how I move forward. But more than that, I would uh, say I would allow myself to mourn it. Like, ouch, that hurt. Like I would feel that pain. Okay. So I got rejected and that's painful. That person didn't want to do this or whatever. And that hurts. And then I'd be like, and, uh, and then I could let that go a little bit. And then I would just make a point of not wishing ill on them because there's a tendency, it's a very common zeitgeist of like, oh, well, they're lost or, you know, they'll regret it. And that's, that's not that sort of resentment, whole other conversation we won't have time for today around resentments. That kind of resentment doesn't serve me well. So I would just say, you know, whatever, because it's very natural when you get rejected to have evil thoughts about the person, right? I mean, I think we all do that to some extent, but I would consciously say, okay, now I need to let go of that. I need to push through it and wish them well. So, so those things helped me not hold on to, it's just really easy to dwell on little things like that. So there's a little look at my journey around connection. Nice. And how did that lead you into your comedy routine? Well, I used to do stand-up comedy when I was younger and I was pretty, pretty wild. Like I did absurd stuff. They, so I, you know, the, a, a comedian who audiences don't laugh at that much is called a comics comics. And I was, they literally called me a comics comics comic. So the comedians <laughs> who thought the comedians that audiences didn't laugh at were hilarious, thought I was great. And then I could occasionally, you know, hit, hit right and, and do things well, but I didn't know how to connect with people. So I was never that good at it. Um, but then when I learned how to connect and I learned how to be more comfortable telling stories and being on stage, I thought, well, why don't I do a comedy show about my journey? And so that was uh, a way to go through these experiences and just sort of bring lightness to it. And so that's, um, this really kind of was a natural thing for me to think to do and to do. And that's been really rewarding, you know, and people really appreciate it. And sometimes I'll do that and I'll, I'll be worried about the comedy. Uh, it's, but people, and, and I'll forget that people are just happy to see, oh, somebody went through this and they're alive and well, like that alone is more valuable than I realize because I forget because you're doing a show. You're like, oh, this joke didn't work here or this thing worked. And you're thinking about all these technical aspects of it. And then people afterwards are just like so glad to see a show done about these things. Um, so, but I, and I went through a journey around learning how dark you can be, right? How, how dark can you go before people are like, uh, you're too sad. We're not. <laughs> and so, you know, I still am learning to some extent, but, uh, but that's, uh, <clears throat> that's natural and healthy. And I've been doing the show. I just did uh, the last time I did, it was last year, like last year, around this time last year. And this year I'm working on building my own, uh, advocacy organization. So I'm doing our company, I guess, really, it's more for profit than it is a nonprofit. Um, so I haven't been doing as much this year, but I do bring comedy into all of my storytelling and things like that. So it, it, it felt natural to me to do it. I loved how you wove the comedy into your TED talk. It was great. And you can see the audience was really responding. Thank you. Yeah. That's really what I was going for is like, can we have fun while talking about these things? So what led you to get up on stage? I started this because I have an issue with public speaking. So I figure, you know, getting mm. to radio where I'm not seeing people and then it moved to podcasts and stuff. So I'm super uh -huh. putting myself out there. I remember the first time I stood in front of a group about a year and a half ago, just to introduce myself, I was leading a small circle that day and just like, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to be doing. And then blank, you know, 
I just sink into the eyes of the crowd. And, you know, uh-huh. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So what are your tips and tools to be able to handle, you know, like public speaking and, you know, because you've been on quite the journey to now, you know, to it's be been on a pretty big journey. Yeah. Well, when I used to do stand up comedy when I was young, I, there was just a, a desire for uh, attention and approval that, you know, if I had gotten more, I, I would have kept doing it, <laughs> but I wasn't that great at it. And then I went through my uh, other journey. And so when I came back to it, the reason I got back on stage again, because after everything I'd been through, I didn't really care anymore about performing. I was like, you know, I'm glad I'm alive. And that was no longer that important. Um, but the um, what happened was I was going to meet an ex-girlfriend at... Uh, we hadn't talked for a while and we were going to get together uh, and she suggested a storytelling thing, which I didn't know what storytelling was. And uh, so we, we set that up and this is about 2012, I think. And then she, um, she bailed on me at the last minute. She essentially stood me up and she uh, said, Oh, I got a better offer. <laughs> Cause I had, I had broken up with her. I think she was still a little bitter about it. The, <laughs> the, um, and, uh, but I was like, well, I might as well go to this thing. I'm already like, uh, you know, there. So, uh, so I watched this storytelling event at a little coffee shop in, uh, Capitol Hill in Seattle called the Roy street cafe. And, uh, it was really amazing watching people, uh, get up and just share very real stories about their lives. And so it wasn't like that attitude of here's a bunch of jokes, folks. It was like, this is something that happened to me that uh, I'm, I'm talking about. And yeah, parts of it might be funny, but it's really about telling a story. Um, that's the primary thing. And then I thought, well, maybe I could come back and do this if I just tell stories about what, you know, what I've been through. I thought maybe that sharing what I've been through is really going to be helpful for me and maybe helpful for some other people. Like I would want them to know they're not alone. And so I did. And I, um, and after that, I, uh, I just kept going back and then I started meeting people and, and I was a little surprised one time I was at a coffee shop and I had told a story about, I think it was my journey through social anxiety. And uh, somebody came up to me like a really well-groomed, well-dressed person with good posture, the kind of people that I assume just are not going to even see me, much less talk to me. And, and they came, and this woman just came over and I didn't know who it was. I'm like, why is she walking this way? And then she was like, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for your talk, that your story it meant so much to me. And, and that was it. I mean, we didn't become friends or anything, but she, uh, she just like, she, it made me realize that people you think aren't struggling with things you're struggling with really often are, right? It was really illuminating. And it made me see the impact that sharing our journey can have for other people, right? What the other people realize they're not alone and they're going through those things. So it was really illuminating for me to, um, to, to have that. And then I started meeting people who would come up to me afterwards and talk to me about their journeys. And so it really became kind of a, a mission. And then I started getting involved in, in more advocacy. Okay. Uh, tips. Yeah. If you want tips on, on public talking, I've got a million of them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Do you want me to do some or was, was that not your intent? Sure. You can share some. I, I don't know that we need to. I just, if you wanted to, I could. Um, the number one thing I would say is know who you're, why you're doing it and who you're doing it for, right? If you know you're doing it to benefit these people who struggle in some way you have or something like that, that's the number one thing is to, is to ground on that because that'll give you a focus for what you edit in or out and it'll give you um, confidence when you go to get on stage and you're afraid, well, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it because I want these people to know this. And so that's really the number one thing. And, and secondarily, I would say, think about your shift in, in any story or talk around a personal journey. There's going to be some kind of shift, uh, right? There are plenty of stories and talks that don't have a shift, but the kind that I'm 
familiar with and coach people on and do myself do. There's some sort of journey, personal journey. And so what was it like before and what was it like after? Where was the journey from and to? What has changed? And you can weave that in explicitly at the end or you can just weave it, let it exist as part of your story. But being aware of what was it like before and what's it like now is really helpful. And then, um, then beyond that, we could go into I mean, there's so I, I lead storytelling workshops as well, and I put together a lot of storytelling shows. So there's a whole and a certified speaker coach. So there's a whole whole field of things we could talk about, but we may not want to go down that rabbit hole right now. That's great. Is that how you got into the Moth Radio Hour story storytelling? No, I just go. You go up there and you put your name in a hat and tell a story, and if they like it, they'll put it on the uh, radio hour. So yeah. <laughs> Great. And then earlier you were um, telling your journey and you talked about your forest retreat. Let's touch a little bit about that because nature is so important in clearing and cleansing and being getting. It was for me. I mean, I'm, I'm not really that outdoorsy still, and I definitely wasn't then, but uh, what happened was I, um, <clears throat> I uh, had been, had, a, had had a suicide attempt and a hospital stay. And I had really connected with a few of the people in the hospital, which I'd never done before. It was like the first time I talked to other people who'd been through suicidal depression. And we were able to talk like in, an, in a really connecting way. And so it, was, it, it shifted my perspective to realize that there were other people who had that same journey and that they were pretty cool. They were like smart. They were funny. They were kind. They were resilient. I'm like, I'm like kind of was really suddenly, instead of being ashamed of having had been through what I did, I was like, you know, this is pretty normal. Like I fit in. So it really shifted my perspective about whether or not I basically belonged on the planet. And, um, and so, <clears throat> but I was still pretty depressed after I was out of there and I didn't have work. And um, I decided to go on a four month backpacking trip and I figured, I would either die or lose weight. I was really, really overweight at the time. And, uh, and as I was out there, so I set out and I was very scared of bears and, and everything. And I couldn't even make it to the top of a, a simple day hike on Yosemite Falls that first day. Uh, I had to crash on the trail. And, but then the next day, you know, I got up and I made it past Yosemite Falls and started going towards Half Dome and somebody passed me on the trail and I was, I was extremely, extremely overweight at that time and, and could, could only go like, you know, 10 feet and then I would puff and puff and catch my breath. It was like, this, this is impossible. Why are you here? But, <laughs> but I was and somebody passed me and said, uh, you know, they stopped and looked at me and said, you're my inspiration. And I didn't really know what they meant, um, but I guess it inspired them that it was seemed so impossible. And yet here I was with a big backpack going way too slow, <laughs> wondering if I would make an actual campsite that night. And uh, I did. And then um, and then I kind of got used to being out there. Right. And I, I realized pretty early on that I did not want to die. Like I was really enjoying it. And what happened was suddenly I was out in the forest. This is the Sierras and it's just, it's very untouched, right? They don't allow machines and all those things up there. So the, the forest is very pristine and there's all this wildlife and, um, and everything and just such clean water and everything is just going on about its business. And like all my drama, you know, that was so important and heavy to me had like zero, they were really just not, they didn't even notice it, which I was a little hurt by. <laughs> I'm joking, but I was a little sort of, they were, they're like, that's how, that's how big and my, my drama was in my head. I was like, oh yeah, like these tadpoles, they're just having a great life. I, they're not at all weighed down by my drama. And as I, and I brought a manuscript, uh, a blank manuscript and started writing out my journey through addiction and, and depression and, and suicidality. And so I, I didn't move that fast on the trail and I would hang out in spots for a few days and work on my manuscript and take little day hikes. But um, the time away from people 
where you're not, for me, where I'm not forced to have an image, to have a self, an identity, where I'm not seen as a loser or an addict or a fat guy or whatever it was, those things that I hated about myself at that time. Um, I wasn't, like there was nobody there to judge me when you're just on your own out there in the forest. There's all those things fell away. And when you have that much time out there that really kind of, you can get some distance from them. And that provided me some space to have some peace and to feel like what it's like to just exist and to feel like, you know, you're just one more living thing on the planet. And, and all those self judgments for a little while just don't exist, right? It's like, uh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm as much a beautiful living thing as anything else on the planet. And so that was a really valuable experience to have that. And, um, and then I started working uh, after I got back and, <laughs> and I haven't been out for four months, but, um, but it was really, it was really grounding. And it was still a few years after that before I got totally clean from addiction, although I was not, wasn't in the same level at all. I would go out maybe once or twice a year. And then I would also smoke a lot of pot, which, which I considered less harmful. Although, uh, there's different schools of thought on that. We don't have to get into it, but I did finally get clean in uh, 2008 and, um, and because of the program I was in, which is the Narcotics Anonymous program, 12-step program, there was no, there was no uh, room to do anything like marijuana, et cetera. So I just have been totally clean since October 2008. So I'll have 12 years here next month. Uh, you know, fingers crossed, uh, count your chickens before they're, they're hatched, but I'd say my chances are pretty good. And so that was really transformative, having that time on the trail, um, because it just gave my soul space, space to breathe without the constant attacks of sort of self-judgment and self-loathing of, of having to be uh, a person who exists in the world, you know, surrounded by other people and, and society and the way it works. Oh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. It was, I was fortunate to be able to have that. Yeah. Nice. So during your TED talk, you were talking about do's and don'ts about discussing depression with our loved ones, friends and loved ones. Could you talk about that a little bit? I can. Um, yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember what I had in the talk because I give, I give trainings now for companies on how to talk about depression and anxiety with coworkers. And, and so I don't, uh, yeah, so, so I don't think in terms of do's and don'ts anymore, but I could definitely like go through some of the, the things that I, uh, I could definitely go through some of the things from there that I think are relevant. Um, one thing is there's a lot that goes on around language and I tend to boil it down. And I say, use person first language. So don't say somebody, you, you would not say Alex is bipolar. Like you wouldn't say Alex is their broken ankle or they are their whatever con medical condition, right? It's really, it's a person and being bipolar is an attribute of them. So Alex has bipolar or is a person living with bipolar. So person first language, I think does really help. If you think to, to talk about people first, and the, the, the condition secondarily. It's not who they are. Um, that's a good one. Avoiding using clinical terms in a pithy way is a good one. Like um, this weather is bipolar or, you know, or even just saying a person is bipolar because they changed their mind about something. Like maybe they're bipolar, but like that is not an indication of it. And why would you be diagnosing them anyways? And even if you did, why would you be telling us their diagnosis? Like it's, it's just really rude. The, or like I know people with anxiety, they get upset because they get frustrated because other people will say like, oh, I'm having such anxiety over simple little things like uh, like choosing a burrito at uh, Whole Foods. Which tortilla do I want? I'm having an anxiety attack. No, you you are having anything. So, so people who really live with actual anxiety and have anxiety attacks don't like that. And an illustrative story, my partner that I do these with, uh, 
uh, lives with OCD and I used to joke that I triple click my car. I often will like walk away from my car, click, is it locked? And look back, is it locked? Click. And I would do that two or three times, sometimes still do. The, um, and I used to joke, oh, I'm so OCD. But she talks about, uh, then, then we did a storytelling show I was doing with Nami and, uh, and she talked about uh, her OCD and what she goes through. And I realized, oh, that is a whole different level of thing. Because uh, she would talk about things like being able, not being able to sleep in her own apartment because she was afraid that her breath would scratch her new computer from across the room. And so I told her after I heard that, and she gave me permission to talk about this stuff publicly, by the way. Uh, I told her after I um, heard that, that I had decided, I stopped saying, joking, I'm OCD, and she really appreciated it. So, so that's another one. But aside from that, I would say don't get too tripped up on... This is, this is what we say in our workshop. Don't, get, don't trip on the correct word obstacle course because really, if you read the guidance from different organizations, they'll say, say this, don't say that. And it's all good, it's all good advice. And if you can digest it all in your head and reconcile it and apply all those little rules, you'll be fine. But you don't, people don't care that as much about the words you use as they do about the perspective that you're coming at them with. If they know that you're there to support them, you're coming from a good place, then um, they're really, uh, they're really more interested in that than they are. Cause I've interviewed people about it and now I'm doing surveys about it. And, and consistently the message that comes back is, yeah, I prefer this, but I don't really care if the person's, you know, if they mean well, I'm glad they're having the conversation with me or whatever. So don't, don't get too worried about what words you're using, but those are some guidelines on language. Um, another big don't I would say is um, don't try to fix people. That is a really, uh, but you know, you can turn, you can turn these into do's as well, right? So it's like, uh, but you're, you're not expected to fix people. And that's really, um, I think a big relief for a lot of people because we feel so much pressure to be like, I'm gonna, oh no, they're having this problem. I must solve it. Um, I mean, especially in the workplace and some people more than others, but there's this idea, oh, there's somebody has presented a problem. It is now my duty to solve it. And some people say that's more of a male type way of thinking than female, but honestly, I see people of all genders and of all kinds of different places have that. So I don't know. It's just a thing that's natural. We, we often want to fix and you don't have to. And I, in a recent survey I've done, the number one people that would make folks more comfortable, more likely to talk about depression and anxiety at work is if people wouldn't try to fix them. If they knew that this person wasn't going to try to fix me, which surprised even me. I was like not expecting that and the results came back. So that's a really big one. Um, so those are a few big things. And then some do's. I, uh, do we have time for a few do's? Sure do. Yeah, I would say start by agreeing with someone. So if somebody's talking about their depression and anxiety, you might think, well, that's stupid. You're being depressed over nothing or you're being anxious over a thing that's not even going to happen. Like that's you may even be right, but if you step back and look at the context in which you're communicating and think about how am I going to connect with this person, if your goal is to connect, you know, your goal may not be to connect, but I'm assuming it is. That's the kind of advice I give. It's based on the premise that you want to connect with them. Start by finding something to agree with. So maybe they're in a work scenario, they're stressed out because they think this project is going to be canceled or at, you know, whatever it is, they're stressed out about something they imagine is going to happen and they haven't been sleeping, maybe. Well, you can say, oh, insomnia sucks. You don't have to start out with, you're crazy for thinking that's going to happen. Just there's, they're having an uncomfortable experience. It might be insomnia. It might just be anxiety. Oh, anxiety sounds really rough. Or it might be whatever it is they're going through. There's going to be something in their experience that you can identify with and agree, agree with. Um, it might even be as simple as, well, you're, I'm sorry, you're going through a rough time. Like you can at least agree with that. So, so don't start out by arguing with people. That's, that's also good advice if you want to connect with people in conversation. I thought it was part of my, my journey around social anxiety as well, because I, I had been five brothers and was, was taught, to, you know, we, we, you argue out of the gate is what you do. And, uh, and I learned that in the real world, like, 
uh, yeah, just because <laughs> as there's a joke from my show, I'm like, just because some things like <laughs> God is okay with you not pointing it out if somebody's wrong about something, right? It's like you can you can actually just talk to them and let something go. You don't have to follow up on every little thing just because you're right or you know a thing. So that's a really big one is you don't have to try to fix them. And then I would say uh, listening can't be under, you know, it can't be overstated how um, how important just listening is. Like a lot of people want to just talk about what's going on and we have a tendency, well, I do and most people do, have a tendency to want to talk about ourselves. So, oh yes, that reminds me of a thing I did. So now I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, that's great. But maybe when you're talking, somebody is opening up about their anxiety and depression, give them the floor be a listener, pay attention to what they're saying, maybe even just do active listening, just repeat back a few things to see if you're understanding it right. But just listening can be big. Um, so those are some really simple things that I would say can be helpful. And then of course there will be cases where those don't apply. Every situation is different. Somebody may, might be like, I want you to help me, give me advice, tell me what to do. Or maybe you're really close with them and you feel like, or, oh, this is a good one, uh, reveal your own journey around it. So if you've dealt with depression and they tell you about theirs, if you tell them about yours, that really creates a connection. Or even if you just say, my mom, my brother, so-and-so. So those would be some high points. Great, those are all wonderful. So what would you say to someone thinking about taking their own life? I would say, um, <clears throat> I would, I would start uh, asking them. I, first, I would say, yeah, well, I know what that's like because, you know, I've, I've, I've been there and, um, you know, and sometimes I get depressed still. So I would just let them know that I share their experience. Uh, that's not something everybody can do because uh, <laughs> um, so I would, uh, I would let them know that I share that experience, but I would also um, then I would uh, I would would ask them questions and I would ask them you know the basic things like I, mean, I would try to find out how serious is it how much danger are they in and and sort of assess that but mainly I would listen and let them know that I care and and um, and offer them support insofar as I can and. Um, so that's really it. My, my first thing is to connect and then to listen and then to assess danger. There's, a, there's, a whole, there's, there's systems around this. There's various ones. There's one called LEARN um, the, uh, that we'll be working with at the event. And, um, but that's really like when I think about it, that's what I do. And then if, some, if somebody is really in danger, you know, there are situations where you can you can point them to resources, or I suppose the farthest I have gone is to uh, make a plan with somebody. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna trust you, but you need to give these pills to your psychiatrist tomorrow, and they need to call me telling me that you gave them the pills, otherwise I'm going to report you to authorities. Like that's, that's as far as I've gone. Different people have different ideas about at what point do you intervene, and I'm not an expert, and it's such a tricky area that I hate to comment too much. So my, my, but if I feel like somebody is not safe, I'm definitely not going to just walk away. I'm going to figure out uh, what are we going to do to make sure that they're safe. So that, that is important. Yeah, absolutely. Safety. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Um, <clears throat> I think I would just leave you with, uh, you know, there's <laughs> whatever you're going through, it probably makes you feel, it may make you feel really alone and like a freak and like you're broken or a loser, but those things aren't true. You're not all alone. In fact, um, especially right now in the time of the pandemic, demic, over a third of the nation is experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety. But beyond that, you're not alone. And um, these are very common things that are very powerful things. So, you, you know, you really, um, you can have an amazing life and people recover all the time. This is what I say is like, 
the beautiful thing about my story is that it's not extraordinary. It's really pretty ordinary. I just happen to spend some time talking about it, but people transform their lives every day. It happens all the time. So uh, what's available to you uh, is something that only you can discover and only you can find, but you can totally have a life that you love. Like you might be stuck in, in patterns of thought and behavior that you've had for years or even decades. And you might think this is inescapable, but I can tell you, People do escape that. They change lifelong patterns of thought and behavior. And, uh, and so that's really the number one message I would have for people. What you think is impossible may actually be possible. Uh, and um, that's, that's really it. I want people who've struggled like I have to know that it's possible to, to have a better life. Awesome. Well, Bill, we'll be able to see you Thursday, September 10th streaming from Vashon Center for the Arts.org with voice with uh, Vashon Be Prepared and the community care team joining us there in Vashon. So you can catch him streaming live. And then where else can we find you? Um, probably the best place to go is my website, stayawesome.com. You can, yeah, there's a lot. And I'm actually starting a new news show, which is just little bits and newsletter and some things around that. So go to stayawesome.com. It's easy to find and you can connect with me there as well. Awesome. Bill, it was great having you. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay. Thank you so much, Liz. You have a great I afternoon. Look forward working with you on Thursday. Yes. I look forward to seeing you then. Okay. And Cheers. thank you everyone. Cheers. And thank you everyone for joining me on this episode of Raise the Vibe with Liz. I'm your host, Liz Peterson. Remember to get out there and raise the vibe. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's show on Raise the Vibe with Liz. If you like this content and want to support me, please go to Patreon at Raise the Vibe with Liz or click the link in the description of this show. And remember, change starts with you. So get out there and raise the vibe. Thank you, everyone.